from the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School. This is Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome to Work and Life. So glad you're here. It's a conversation we have every week exploring all those things related to work and the rest of your life, your family, your community, our society, and yourself, who you are as an individual, your mind, body, and spirit. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I'm the founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program. I run a management consulting and training company called Total Leadership, and you can find out about our services that help people and organizations create greater harmony, reduce stress, and improve performance in all parts of life uh, by going to totalleadership.org. You can find free book chapters there, articles, videos, assessment tools, lots of stuff at totalleadership.org. Our show premieres Thursdays, 5 p.m. Eastern, here on SiriusXM Channel 132. And you can follow us on Twitter at SXM Business, as well as me at Stu Friedman. My guest today is an expert on inflection points, those paradigmatic shifts in the landscape. Uh, and her, her most recent book, Seeing Around Corners, is all about how effective leaders and teams can see those shifts coming before they happen or as they're emerging and, and can react to them in innovative ways that enable them to, to thrive. Of course, uh, we weren't really ready for the inflection point. That is the pandemic era we are now in. We're recording this in mid-July 2020. And that, of course, has swept across all aspects of our lives, economic, social, health, psychological, and the, the political spheres. And we're going to be getting into that. We're going to talk about her book and, and what we can learn from the science of innovation to which she's contributed a great deal that's applicable to what we're experiencing now. So I'm honored, truly, to welcome my longtime friend, it's Columbia Business School professor Rita McGrath, to the program. Her latest book, again, Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Rita, welcome to Work and Life. It's a pleasure to be here, Stu. Well, it's great to have you here. Let me tell listeners just a bit more about you before we uh, get into the conversation. Rita McGrath is widely recognized as a premier expert on leading innovation and growth during times of uncertainty. So incredibly relevant right now. Rita has received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the top or the world's top 10 management thinkers in its biannual ranking. As a consultant to CEOs, her work has had a lasting impact on the strategy and growth of uh, companies in the Fortune 500 worldwide. She received her PhD from the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania, so she is a proud alum. And that's when I got to know her back in the day when she was a PhD student here, raising all kinds of trouble for a lot of people, just kidding. And has no, you're not <laughs> degrees, yeah, okay, with honors from Barnard College and the Columbia School of International and Public Affairs. All right, Rita, it's really great to have you here. Uh, so great. thanks for making time. Oh, it's a pleasure. Seeing around corners, uh, predicting and preparing for radical changes in in your world as a, as a business. I can't think of anything much more relevant. Uh, to what's happening in our world today, and not just businesses, of course, but schools and school districts, colleges and universities, or the whole education sector, uh, as well as virtually every business sector, large and small companies, trying to get through this pandemic summer and to anticipate the fall and beyond. Your book was conceived, I assume, as one that is primarily for business leaders, and that's that's how I read it, and the cases in it are just fantastic and so well-researched and well-written. Kudos. I mean, it's really compelling and and so persuasive to how you bring your ideas uh, to life through these very contemporary cases addressing really interesting companies and, and technologies. So what can the private sector and the public sector 
learn from your your body of research um, and and I'm wanting to focus not so much on the signals that we missed unless you want to you know bring that to the fore as a way to help listeners understand what we need to be doing going forward i I'd like to try to have your focus here be as much as possible forward looking so let's let's start with that gigundo question <laughs> and you could and if you want me to narrow it down further, I will well, I think I've got a point of view and a point of departure on that, which okay. is that, you know, the when I first started in the field of strategy, right, all the cool kids were doing industry analysis and order of entry. And the fallacy with that was that you were studying situations where the markets existed, the companies existed, the competition had shaken out, transactions were well understood, the metrics were all there. In other words, you were dealing with a world of fairly high levels of certainty or predictability. So Mm -hmm. as an example, you know, if I were to try to estimate the revenue that would come to the Wharton School from the graduating class of 2019, I could do that with incredible precision because it would be remarkably like the graduating class of 2018, right? Mm -hmm. And of course, today we can't do that. So we've all been shoved into this really high uncertainty situation. And I think what we can learn from the field of innovation, which is where I've spent a lot of my career, is what are ways of thinking when a situation is truly high uncertainty? And the good news is we have a lot of tools, but they're not well known. And the reason they're not well known is that most leaders, whether they're in the public sector or the private sector or education or wherever, most of the time they're in that Wharton class of 2019 world where, you know, things are sort of able to be predicted. And, you know, it's entirely possible to be a senior leader in an organization without ever having once touched innovation in any meaningful way. And so I think what we're seeing today is a huge gap between the tools that we have that we know work in high uncertainty situations and the comfort level that most leaders have with those tools. Mm. And I think that applies on a personal level as well as on a kind of organizational level. Well, I want to get into what that means for listeners who are thinking, yeah, I've never faced anything like this before. What the heck do I do to help my, you know, my business life as well as my life beyond? Uh, so let's, let's get into it in terms of the, the, the tools that you're referring to. What are, the, what are the main ones? So I think the main one is not trying to plan too far in advance or make fixed resource commitments too far in advance, that what you want to be doing is learning in very rapid uh, iterations. So you make a hypothesis, you get to the test of that hypothesis, um, and then you see what you've learned, and then you take the next one. So if you think of it as a journey, right, uh, in a traditional world, we think of the journey as being a pretty, like, highway, right? It starts at point A and goes to point B. And the journeys we're all on right now, and I think part of the reason we're also exhausted is we're breaking up that highway into like lots of little pathways and you sort of get to one path and you see the road is blocked and then you have to go to another path and you see that road is blocked. And the result is actually that we're making progress, but it doesn't feel like normal progress. It doesn't feel like, right, checklist, done step, you know, like an army marching forward, it feels like a lot of fits and starts. And the good news is that's not bad, that what my research suggests is if you do want to make headway in a highly uncertain situation, the best way to do that is lots of rapid and small iterations. Um, so you want to increase your clock. In, in, the, in the organization studies world, right? The, the, the theory of small wins, where you mm-hmm. take small steps in a direction that you've thought about, you're intentional about, you know, the general direction of where you want to go. Um, and then just iterate, 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 and learn, learn as much as possible right. each step of the way. So you're saying that there is some good news in what you're seeing in the current environment with respect to people having a sense of movement and learning from it? Yeah, I do. I mean, I think one of the things that has been fascinating to watch is how many of the rules are being rewritten you know, or, or how many of the rules are no longer considered to be rules, let's put it that way. So this is kind of a great unfreezing. The second thing that's been fascinating to me is... What's an example oh, of that? Oh, um, you know, the, the, the lack of comfort many senior leaders have had even today with employees working from home. 
and mm -hmm. their belief that if you have unsupervised people in their living rooms, that they're going to be spending their time in sweatpants playing video games rather than attending to the needs of the company. And that's been completely debunked now. You know, people are even more productive in many cases working at home than they were uh, having to hassle, commute, you know, put all that time into going to an office. Now, I'm not talking about people at home with toddlers. I'm talking about, you know, professionals who can have some control over the order of their lives. Um, and so that's one example of- But a lot of those people have toddlers. Well, that's, that's a, yeah. I mean, that's a very different man management challenge. And I think, um, I think being attuned to that and sensitive to that is really uh, important. So, so there is a, there has been a great awakening and I've observed that too, with respect to, you know, this kind of natural experiment, uh, the tsunami that's just flooded the universe of, uh, you know, uh, being the concept of co-location of workers and, you know, especially in the knowledge economy, uh, it's just been wiped out. And so any resistance that people might have felt, the, the particularly people of a certain age who grew up in a different kind of environment, didn't trust, uh, you know, the, the ways in which their, their people might be able to pursue both work and the other parts of their lives. Mm -hmm remotely mm -hmm. uh you know they've been forced to adapt to that so within that scope let's just stay on this topic since it's just it's so relevant to mm -hmm. not not just our moment but also what we what we focus a lot on on this show um can you think of a way in which this notion of hedging and iterating you know placing placing various bets is playing out in that sphere of action the notion of you know where and when and how people work. Mm -hmm. Oh, totally. I mean, a couple of things that I would argue have been real boons uh, are the fact that, you know, in a, in a big classroom setting, let's just say, or in a big conference hall or in a big meeting, you know, there's always typically, you know, five to 10, typically male, typically loud people who kind of dominate the conversation. And what we're seeing now is many more venues for people to be represented. So if you're at an all hands meeting, right? The janitor takes up the same square as the executive vice president. And I think same we're square seeing... on the screen. On exactly. The... Yeah. yeah. And so this idea that, you know, well, I'm the CEO, you know, and I sit in the big chair and I have, and I've literally been in meetings where this happened. Like the CEO has a special chair that makes him higher than everybody else. I mean, I'm praying that stuff is starting to die out, but it's still there in pockets mm -hmm. on a screen with 40 people on it. You know, you're the same size as everybody else. And they're, uh, you know, we're losing a lot of those physical signals of who's important and who's in charge and who's whatever. And so I think it creates the potential. Now it still it has to be managed. I'm not saying this is going to happen naturally, but it creates the potential for voices that normally wouldn't get heard to be heard. And one of the things I talk about in my book is learning from the edges of the organization. So getting out to where the snow melts first. Well, it's where the snow melts, right? The the where and Andy Grove famously said this. He said, "If you want to know where spring is first appearing, you must travel to the periphery because that's where the snow is most exposed." And so, my way of saying that is, snow melts from the edges. Mm -hmm. But you know, we have for the first time, I think, massive ability for executives, if they want to, if they're motivated to, to actually talk to where things are happening in their business in a very easy, horizontally agnostic way. So, you know, we have the potential, and again, we'll see if we use it well, but we have the potential for breaking down silos, cross-organization communications in a way that's just not possible when you're, you know, continents apart, um, and a recognition that this is actually okay, that, you know, you can have I and mean, I've talked to organizations now where they'll have, um, let's say it's a, um, in, a group representing an underrepresented minority group. Um, they can actually very quickly mobilize across, you know, across organizations even. Um, one of the groups I work with is a group called um, Women of Color in Pharma. And, you know, talk about an underrepresented group in an industry that's you know, mm -hmm. historically been very pale and male. Um, but, you know, they're able to very quickly mobilize resources um, to to connect, to communicate, to say, this is what I'm seeing. What are you seeing? In so I think there's a lot world. of, beg your pardon? In the remote uh, communications yep. world that we're, that we're presently in. So another thing um, 
just on that topic is I am seeing more openness to hearing from people who are not necessarily the normal people coming to the conference room. So hang on to that thought. I want to remind listeners uh, that this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. So glad you're with us today. My guest is Columbia Business School professor and Wharton PhD, Rita McGrath. She's the author of Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. So, Rita, you were saying that um, you know, there's, there's an openness now to more voices more readily being heard because of the nature of communication having been altered from co-located uh, people in a room together where the, the symbols and signals of hierarchical distance are so apparent uh, and so exclusionary, uh, <clears throat> even if unintendedly so, and that, that, that that's shifted. So what, uh, what are you seeing along those lines and, and how, are, how are the good companies responding? Well, I think the good companies are doing what good companies have always done, which is try to create spaces for voices that perhaps have a different perspective on the world to be heard. I mean, that's been a hallmark of great, great leadership for as long as I've known. But I think what this has done is it's removed a lot of the frictions. Um, it's, it's sort of created a layer of call it non-hierarchical communication, which is very difficult in a traditional organization. You know, um, I think, you know, email was maybe an early version of that, but email quickly became so cluttered and so mm -hmm. just obnoxiously irritating that it stopped having that power of sort of letting anybody talk to anybody. So you've so already written the, uh, the obituary for email? You're referring <laughs> to it in the past tense, Rita. <laughs> no, I just mean it's with us. I don't think, I don't think it's going away anywhere soon. Uh -huh. um, but, but if you come back to the ability to get a message from one part of the organization to another, a lot of the frictions are just gone. Mm -hmm. And so what does that mean for underrepresented, historically underrepresented groups like if, women of color in pharma? Yeah. I mean, I think if leveraged appropriately, I think you could gain a tremendous amount of insight. Um, and and just to, I mean, I think we're, we're now blessedly becoming aware of the dangers of homogeneity, you know, in thought, in decision making, in decision making groups. In fact, I have on my desk... Um, uh, Carolyn Criado Perez's book, Invisible Women, in which she goes through hundreds of pages, basically laying out how data sets dominated by assuming half the human race is representative of the whole are actually dangerous, lethal to women. Hmm. So I think we're seeing a much greater awareness of that. Certainly the movements that we're seeing all around us for racial justice have prompted an awful lot of people who kind of weren't thinking much about it. And, and again, I don't think this is venality. I just think if it's not your day-to-day -day experience, you don't tend to think about it a whole lot. And now it's causing a lot of people to ask questions. I think it is opening. Well, those of us with privilege uh, tend to not be aware that we have it. And we make the fundamental attribution error of attributing our success to our own efforts and, uh, and, 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 and to others uh, we, we attribute um, we, we, we don't see the benefits or the, the, the hurdles that they have to overcome. And, and so it's, it's, it's easy to be blinded, but there well, is a, a reckoning. Go ahead. I think so. And I think what, what I'm seeing among a lot of people um, is an openness Firstly, just to learning more, which I think is not something would would have been in our agendas, you know, however many uh, months ago. Uh, so an openness to learning more and more importantly, a willingness to say, yes, I'm going to do something about this, even if it's something small, you know, even if it's something modest. So that's um, back to your earlier point about how to move through points of inflection, and that is through action, mm -hmm. small steps in a direction that you choose. That's, that's my words. Please elaborate or correct me in terms of what, what you've learned from your research on innovation about, you know, the, these uh, small bets and, sure. and so, how they relate to what we're experiencing now. Right. So uh, a good small bet, um, what I would call a, a discovery-driven plan towards a checkpoint, uh, has some properties that I think we need to be mindful of. Um, the first is they should be quick, if, if possible. Second is they should be low risk. Um, third... 
uh, they should be able to tell you something definitive. So if you make the experiment and then you learn from it, um, that's good. If you just sort of take an action and it doesn't work out the way you expected, but you can't really figure out why, that's a, that's a poorly designed small bet. So what you want is something almost like a scientific experiment, right? You're going to make a hypothesis, um, you're going to test something, and then you're going to see what happens. So, you know, a project I'm working on right now is um, designing some surveys, which are supposed to give people some insight. Well, are they going to be of interest to people? I don't know. So what I'm going to do is do an early version. I'll put it somewhere on the website or whatnot. And if people are interested, then they'll click through and then I'll learn what they what, what they find value in. And if, if I learn that there is value there, then maybe I'll make a subsequent investment. So I think- You emphasize um, the importance of providing value, right? Uh, and creating, uh, you know, ex- experiments that, that help your customer, your stakeholder, whatever you want to call her, uh, get, get a job done that they're not able to get done now. Do I have that right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Exactly. So the the whole notion of jobs to be done, which Clay Christensen famously used to to think about how you figure your strategy out in the world. Um, but I think what most providers are, are stunningly unaware of is um, what is the job that their customer, their stakeholder, in, in the case of not-for-profits, what are they trying to get done? And what are the barriers between what you're doing and what those people are trying to get done. And I think a lot of times we are so focused on what we do and on what we are in charge of that thinking beyond that to what the customers are doing is, is, is really difficult. It's and just hard, it, isn't it? What makes it so hard? Because we, the world as others do, especially it, those that you love and care about and depend on so much. It, it is hard. It's fascinating. I think it's because we get very caught up in the piece of it that we do. So let's just take something that's common to you and I. Um, We both teach in executive education. And for a participant to come to executive education, they've got to clear the time on their calendar. They've got to figure out their airplane trips unless they happen to live locally. They've got to book a hotel. They've got to, you know, there's like a thousand barriers between getting the experience thereafter and, and what it is. So now introduce virtual executive education all of a sudden those barriers disappear. So we're just launching um, a a course that I teach called Women in Leadership. Mm -hmm. And normally we'll get, you know, 25 people. It's wonderful. It's a three-day course. But we launched this virtual one, which is now two sort of half, two half days spread over a four-week exchange. Mm -hmm. And a couple of magical things have happened. First of all, people who never could have come to an in-person course are now find it accessible. So back to that theme about accessibility. Secondly, because we're spreading it out in time, because nobody wants to sit in front of a screen for three full days, women who would never have been able to because of family obligations or whatever can now participate. But from a learning, from an educational uh, point of view, what I'm super excited about is they can now spread that content out. So they got more time to absorb. They've got more time to uh, put the things into I, practice. Yeah. It's fabulous. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Makes, makes perfect sense. Uh, of course you can't charge as much and, and the residence halls are not going to be making any money. Um, you, you know, you charge, it's not that different. I mean, we do of course give a discount because we're not feeding people, you know, and, and that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, but the, the, the strictly educational aspect of it is pretty much the same. It's holding up still. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What does this mean for, for the education sector more generally, not just the rarefied air that we are fortunate enough to swim around in with uh, high-priced executive education at, you know, elite Ivy League business schools. <laughs> That's not the real world, let's no, say. No, it's not. Uh, what about the New York City public school system, um, where uh, I've got a personal stake in this with respect to a particular grandchild? Uh, what are they going to do? I think it's going to be hard. And this is where, again, I'm back to this theme of experimentation. I mean, the first problem is because we haven't made the tough choices to mm. get this thing under control. And because New York is such a hub of, um, you know, commerce for everything, you know, a flare up anywhere is two weeks away from a flare up here. Um, and so the concern I have is, you know, if you don't have a, I mean, the virus doesn't care. The virus doesn't care what party you are or how powerful you are or whatever. And, you know, human beings are not perfect creatures. Um, there was a piece in the paper the other day that people are lying to get onto airplanes. They're, they're denying they have symptoms oh, and wow. using short-term medications to cover them up so that they can get to where they to want to go. Their destination. Wow. And, you know, while I have a lot of empathy and sympathy for that, 
at a virology point of view, what you've just done is you've exposed an entire plane load of people to something they wouldn't have been exposed to before. So I think what we're going to have to start really experimenting with is a couple of things. Um, firstly, the job, and I had a wonderful conversation uh, with Paul LeBlanc from Southern New Hampshire University uh, not too long ago, and we were talking about this very issue, and he, he's decided they are not coming back to campus in the fall. They just, you know, his concern is, with something even as simple as the ventilation system. And there's yeah. evidence now that the coronavirus may actually spread mm -hmm. into places where you're not actually with a physical human being, but you could still be infected. I mean, that's a really scary new development. Mm -hmm. um, and so his, his position is that we just can't do that. So then what I think we need to start doing is taking a step backward and saying, well, let's assume, let's assume that for most students, physical proximity for many hours a day is just not, it's not something we want to risk. You know, and, and it's certainly not something a lot of teachers want to risk. And, of course you not. Know, they're the cafeteria attendants. And I mean, people keep thinking about the students, but there's a whole community around most schools. Um, so if if we just say that that's the case. So the analogy I would make was, um, you know, six months ago, nobody thought that the mass of people working remotely for things like call centers and car dealerships and service, they thought that wasn't going to work. Guess what? We figured it out. So if we say students physically coming back is probably not something we want to risk, at least until this virus is better contained. Now step back and think about, well, what's the job that a New York City public school or a community college or a university does for those students. And and Paul's very articulate about this. He says, you know, the typical job of a campus experience is this coming of age. They take the education part, the knowledge part for granted, right? And in fact, most of the content that you're going to get, dirty little secret between the two of us, most of the content you're going to get in terms of that content is freely available on YouTube right now. Oh, hush, hush, <laughs> hush. Wait a minute. I'm being told by our sponsors that we need to take a break now because you're about to give away uh, a $40 billion industry worth of uh, secrets. No, just kidding. Uh, I know. No, I, but I mean, the, the reality is, is... Hang on. Hang on, Rita. We need to take a short break here. Okay. Um, and I do want to get to what what is the job of us in education and how do we... How do we serve that role in a different way? And I think there's going to be some insight, not just for people in education or people who have a stake in the educational system, but for, for all of us uh, when we come back. So let's just take a quick break here. Don't go away, folks. When we come back, I'll continue my conversation with Professor Rita McGrath about the insights from her book, Seeing Around Corners, for how we can see around the corners the very sharp and weird corners that are popping up everywhere in our lives these days, July 2020. Uh, stay with us. I am Stu Friedman. This is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. We will be right back. You're listening to Work and Life on Business Radio. Welcome back to Work and Life. I am your host, Stu Friedman. I founded the Wharton Work-Life Integration Project and the Wharton Leadership Program way back in 1991, which was around the time, if I'm not mistaken, that my guest, Columbia Business School professor Rita McGrath, was a PhD student wandering the hallways of Steinberg Dietrich Hall here at the great University of Pennsylvania campus. She's the author of Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points, in business before they happen. And we're talking less about business and more about life in general and other institutions and organizations and how, how we can learn from these principles uh, of, of uh, innovation and adaptation to, to survive and perhaps even thrive in, in the, the troubling times that we, that we find ourselves in now. So we were just addressing prior to the break was the question of, you know, what is the job of higher education or the job that we're trying to help our, our stakeholders and particularly students trying to do. And you were saying. So let's use education as illustrative, but I think this applies to any organization trying to figure out like once your business model has been basically blown up, which is essentially, I mean, nobody's admitting it, but that's basically what's happening to in-person um, education for the foreseeable future. You know, um, So once that's been blown up, that gets taken off the table. Well, guess what? You're going to have to start to get creative. And the way you get creative is asking yourself, where 
do you have a role to play in the jobs that your constituencies want to get done? So I'll use education as a case in point, but I think okay. a similar thought process applies many other places. So what do we do for students? Um, well, the first thing we do is we, of course, provide content. But nobody really wants the content and nobody really wants the credit hour. What they want is the ability to do something, whether that's think critically, code a program, develop a skill, do a scientific experiment. That, that's what they actually want. And the content we provide is simply a vehicle to get to that. The second thing they want is they want a credential. They want something that tells the world, yes, I had this experience, therefore, I'm in a separate category than others. Um, they want a coming of age. You know, they want to know who they're in the glee club with and who they're going to play sports for and who they're going to root for. And, um, and that experience is probably the one that's going to be most disrupted. But they also want um, a reputation. And they also want the ability to have the credibility, right, of, um, of a, a credible rep institution telling you what it wants. So what I would do uh, if I were a college president, which thankfully I am not, is I would begin sort of compiling a list of all those kinds of outcomes that our students and other constituents are trying to drive and then think through, well, what do we have to offer that could help them achieve those outcomes? So when it comes to credentials, as an example, why do we have this archaic system where we credential by the time you're but spent in a seat rather than credentialing on the basis of what you know? And one of the underutilized aspects of technology that we could be deploying, as an example, is you could, you could have a way of credentialing based on what people can actually do rather than credentialing based on how many credit hours you took. Now, that would be a big change, right, in the way we do things. But from the perspective of an employer, from the perspective of, you know, a coworker or a team, um, how much better would that be, right? So rather than saying a bachelor's degree, just as an example, is a proxy for I went to someplace for four years, my butt was in the right seat for four years, I handed in my papers on time, and therefore I'm likely to be exhibiting those same behaviors at work. <laughs> you know, what if we actually knew and had some transparent way of saying, here's what their life experiences have been. And there are entities right now that are able to credential at that level. Mm -hmm. So I've been predicting for a while, Stu, that, that, you know, think of the typical bundle of what higher education offers, kind of like a record, you know, like an album. And you're buying 18 songs when you want one or two of them. And, you know, and in a, in a, in a way, what we could see with higher ed is an unbundling. And I think one of the great things that's going to do potentially is really democratize the process. Um, one of the dirty little secrets of higher ed in the, the United States anyway, is our mental images of an 18 to 22 year old four year college attending student. Um, when in fact, most students that start don't end. So they have student debt and no credential, which is like the worst place to be. Um, and so what if we really thought about making higher education something those people could use to establish a better life for themselves? Mm. So, I mean, the general point uh, about what you've learned in the science of innovation is uh, to somehow free your mind and your resources to be able to seriously experiment with, with new models in a way that is, well, relatively low cost and low risk. Mm -hmm. And you have permission to uh, And it's to better that. to do that. It's better to do that before the inflection point explodes in your face, Right. But once it's exploded in your face, you have permission yeah. to try a lot of things that would have been unthinkable before. And right. that's what I was talking about when I talk about unfreezing. Yes, we we have been, to use the, the Levinian term from Kurt Lewin's, uh, you know, early, early work in the middle of the last century on, you know, how does change happen? Well, something has to something has to break up the status quo. He talked about it as unfreezing, uh, moments mm -hmm. in which people become freer uh, mm -hmm. to to think in new ways about what's possible. So there's all kinds of opportunity mm -hmm. uh, for that. Where, where else are you seeing that? Um, we talked about uh, you know, the notion of greater opportunity to allow for you know, new models for where and when work gets done. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, in order to, to really go all in on that and to invest in that, we need support for those people who are indeed working parents who have kids at home that they have to either take care of before because they're not in school yet or to help them do their schooling while they're home because they're remote, they're remote as students, you know, the kids. So, so there, 
let's let's just stay on that one because it's just such a present idea for so many people listening to the show right now at the individual level do you have any wisdom from from your experience and your research on what you know at, at the, the the unit of analysis here coming down to the family what uh what working parents can be thinking about doing in terms of their own kind of management of innovation in this time of massive inflection. Mm-hmm. So I think one of the things to remember is that this, you know, American Western European idea of the nuclear family, where you've got, you know, one or two parents and a bunch of kids, but they live in isolation from each other, right? They live in isolation from other families. Um, if you go back to agrarian communities, everybody worked at home. That was the only place work got done. And therefore you had kids underfoot and animals and everything. And so how did they solve the problem? What they did was they specialized. So, you know, you could have one or two women, let's say, um, looking after eight, 10, 12 children. And the other women would be doing, you know, picking or hurting or whatever. Um, Typically, the men would do things that required more physical strength. But I think one of the things we have not thought about enough, and you mentioned community earlier, is surely we could think of community solutions, right? I mean, we're now talking about COVID bubbles, right? So once you know you've got a secure bubble, and you can gradually expand that bubble, right? Why wouldn't we have a situation where, you know, you had two people, men or women, um, who say, okay, I'm going to work out a job sharing arrangement. Two and a half days of the week, I'll be on kid duty. Two and a half days, you'll be on kid duty. Uh, and between the two of us, we're a full person. Um, you know, the economics might be a little bit more dicey, but at least it gets the jobs done of being present at work and being present at home in a way that might be a little different than we've thought of. Mm-hmm. So I don't think we think enough about community. I don't think we think enough about, um, you know, let's form some allyships, right? I mean, why does it have to be a one-to-one parent-to-child ratio? It's sort of crazy. Now, the caveat, of course, is you want to be sure that you're not exposing people to risks that they wouldn't want to be exposed to. So that's why I think working with friendship networks or people that you know, um, and you know, it's 14 days. You, you, you know, if you, if you sort of make an arrangement, you say, okay, in 14 days, we're going to start this. Yeah, we're going to quarantine for 14 days. And then once we're clear, you know, once we get the sort of neon good to go sign, then we can put into place some of these new arrangements. So as a couple of examples, you know, why couldn't we have a uh, you know, one person makes a trip to Costco, fills up the back of the minivan and um, or, you know, the shopping cart in New York City case or, or more urban places. And uh, we have a cooking party and then every family has something to reheat for the rest of the week. That takes a huge burden off, you know, mm-hmm. every time mealtime. So I just think there are inexpensive tools, not tools, that's the wrong way to put it, inexpensive solutions mm-hmm. that people really haven't been thinking enough about, I think. Mm hmm. Yeah, uh, the notion of a village raising children is one that's been around forever. And this pandemic, in concert with the raising of consciousness about how we are all interconnected and not all equally uh, privileged with respect to access to the resources of society, seems to have created, clearly has created, a, uh, a real impetus for people to think more communally, generally speaking. And perhaps that is one of the opportunities here uh, as we think with hope as we must. Well, if you think about it, for an awful lot of workers in the U.S., work is just getting to and from work is an ordeal that leaves very little energy for, you know, what's going on in the community and what's, uh, you know, what could we be doing to help uh, our neighbors? And um, just in my little neighborhood here, we have the local kids are um, are sponsoring a food drive. And so Saturday at 10 o'clock, you're supposed to take a grocery bag of food and put it down by your mailbox and they're going to go collect them and bring it to a, a very great organization near here that uh, is trying to end homelessness in our county. Um, but I mean, that's sort of spontaneous almost. Um, this isn't an organized group. I don't even know who they are. They signed themselves the children of West Windsor. <laughs> so, but you know, I'll participate in something like that. Why not? Yeah, you're going to feel good about it. And, and those, that's a wonderful example mm-hmm. of how perhaps uh, emerging from this terrible time, this, this tumultuous time, this very disorienting and frightening time for so many people uh, will be a shift in our values collectively uh, in terms of how we think about our responsibilities 
for each other. Let me remind listeners, this is Work and Life on Business Radio, Sirius XM 132. I'm your host, Stu Friedman. I'm speaking with Columbia Business School professor Rita McGrath, the author of the really insightful and incredibly readable book. It's called Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. So what else can we be doing to looking ahead uh, in terms of, you know, seeing what, whatever the heck is coming? Uh, what, what more can we be doing individually and collectively to be smarter about preparing for the next wave of whatever the heck is, is, is you know, we don't know is, is about to befall us and create yet new opportunities for the, the smart ones among us or the, the lucky slash smart ones among us to be, uh, to be able to, well, to thrive. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that is important to know, I think, is that when you're thinking about the information that you use to make any kind of decision, there's always information that lags So it's great information, but the thing has already happened. You can't change it. Then there's information that's current. And you can think about things like your net promoter score or your current employee engagement as current indicators, what's going on right now. Mm -hmm. And what I think all of us could stand to do a lot better is think about these leading indicators. Mm -hmm. So what is the data we could see today that gives us some insight into what might be happening tomorrow? So I'll give you an example from the book. Um, So in the book, I suggested that Facebook was going to get itself into real trouble. And the overwhelming reason I believe that is that, you know, you're basically lying to your customers. They do not understand that once you post that baby picture to Facebook, it and all of its metadata and everything else about it belongs to them, not you. Wait, what? Um, (laughs) (laughs) Those pictures I've been posting about my granddaughter, you mean... I don't own those. She could sue you down the road for posting those without her permission, by the way. Oh, please um, don't. But anyway, so when I first wrote this. And, you just and, ruined my day, Rita. <laughs> just kidding. I, I think I already knew that, but go ahead. But so when I first wrote this, and this was, of course, the, was a while ago because the book um, came out last September, um, my, my editorial team at my publisher said to me, you think Facebook is going to get into trouble? My God, that was, and at the time it was unthinkable. I mean, this thing. Facebook is, is, is like, it's like oxygen. Come exactly. on now. But when you look, you can see the early warning. So, you know, early warning one, my daughter and people, you know, her age and younger are not on Facebook. Maybe they're on Instagram, which of course is a Facebook property, but younger than that, they're on nothing like that. Secondly, um, you had a very insular management team who really wasn't listening. Thirdly, blah, blah, blah. You get the idea. Um, And so here we are now, 2020, and advertisers have finally come to recognize that being associated with this is maybe not such a good look. Um, so, you know, I predicted it, not predicted. And, and again, I, one other thing I should say is two things you should not do with early warnings, uh, with leading indicators is don't assume that because what they predicted came true means it was a good leading indicator. The best leading indicators are the ones that incite action before it's necessary. Mm-hmm. Uh, secondly, don't mix up your preferences with your predictions. <laughs> and we all do this as human beings. You know, I'd like this to be the future we find. So I make up all kinds of reasons why that's going to be true when yes. there's a lot of data that says that may not be. So I think beginning to think about what are my early warnings? What am I going to look at right now that tells me what could conceivably happen down the road? And, you know, my putting the Facebook chapter in the book was not without controversy because my editor was like, you know, you really want to be. Um, and, I, and look, I have nothing. Against Zuck's not going to like this, Rita. No, <laughs> you're not, not going to have that consulting contract with Facebook. I don't think so. Well, um, so well, what is that? What can you, can you think of another example? I mean, that's a great one because they are really under a great deal of stress and strain right now. And we'll have to rethink their their model. Um, There's just been a bill introduced that would basically make their model illegal. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's a pretty strong early warning. And, and they're losing, you know, major advertisers, uh, you know, now here mid-July 2020, mm-hmm. almost daily. So w- can you think of a, another way in which listeners would, you know, be advised to be you know, looking for leading indicators in their worlds? Um, you know, the things you want to look for are the workarounds, the disconnects, the things that aren't working, um, because that's where someone inventive and entrepreneurial is going to find a solution, right? So let's come back to this thing we were just discussing, right? The fact that people who are trying to work have young kids at home is a huge, huge, huge problem. Someone entrepreneurially is going to figure something out. 
that is going to help address that problem. Now, we haven't gotten there yet, but, you know, if you really thought about it, there's money to be made in a situation like that, but it won't be conventional daycare and it won't be conventional schools. It will be something else. Mm-hmm. What? I'm not sure. Um, so that's an example. So kind of where are the workarounds? Where are things breaking down that are not, you know, and I talk about a consumption chain, which is a complete chain of experiences and anywhere along the chain. And then this is get back to a question you asked earlier about why are we, why is it so hard to get into our stakeholders experience? Because yeah. we're focused on the little piece of the chain that we do. We're not looking at the whole broad experience. So let me give an everyday example of this. So I had a box uh, of books that was supposed to be shipped to a client and I had a piece of paper with everything Federal Express would have needed to get this box to where it needed to go. So I had the client name, the reference number, the da da da. So doorbell rings, guy stands at my porch. This was pre-COVID. Guy's on my porch and I hand him the box and he looks at it with horror and he says, but it doesn't have a label. And I'm like, well, okay, you know, go, go get a label from your truck. I'll happily fill it out for you. I don't carry labels on my truck. And now, so I'm thinking my thought, pro- and I'm not going to yell at the guy because he's not, he didn't design this process. Glad and I'm like, well, that, tell me then, Prithi, where would I be able to procure a label? And he very helpfully says to me, well, I could overnight you one. Nah. Um, <laughs> or, I think, or, or I think the FedEx I, truck. he is standing at the door with a FedEx truck and my box sitting on the porch. Um, and uh, he said, oh, and I think maybe you could print one off the internet. And then, one. then he left. He left me and without, my box. Now, without the your reason, package. Well, see, Stu, the reason I think this is such an interesting example for everyday people is um, I am sure that if I sat down with the senior executives at FedEx and said, why, why are you so insistent on this label? I'd get back this whole long thing about the label is the thing that brings together the delivery guy and the schedule and the credit card. That's and the, you know, all Bitcoin probably. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> but the reality is, as a customer, do I care? Now, Think about it this way. If, let's say, my need to get this box from A to B, and by the way, Federal Express's entire reason for existing is to get things like boxes from point A to point B. That's, That's the, the only reason we they were put here that. on this earth, right? So let's say my need had been urgent, um, and I would have been moderately inconvenienced, but I would have you know, picked up my box and gone to the nearest UPS store. FedEx would have lost that sale, and nobody in the company would ever have known. Yeah. And that's what I mean when I say we, we just are so blind to the experiences that our stakeholders go through. That's mm-hmm. a great example, right? So, but that, that doesn't quite address how you get that driver, let's say, mm-hmm. or, you know, their boss to, to rethink the need for that label. Right. Um, what does that take? And we only have a couple minutes. So, and I've got six other questions I want to ask you that I'll not be able to, but. um, It takes being curious. You know, Mm -hmm. it takes really wanting to know. And for example, at Microsoft, what Satya Nadella does every time his executive leadership team gets together is they beam in um, members of a small project team working on something in the outer reaches of Microsoft, like Turkey or Istanbul, that are doing something interesting and new. And so each week, the people that put together this meeting have to go find those teams. So it's a process. Uh, you got to search. Creating, you're creating an incentive for somebody to go ask the question. So yeah. if FedEx got its drivers together once a month and said, you know, what did you do this month that disappointed a customer? That story would very quickly have bubbled to the top. All right. So, so it's being curious about the world and being unafraid about what you might find because therein lies the gold, right? Mm-hmm. Exactly. All right, we're, we're gonna we're gonna need to bring this home. Uh, oh, I can you give us just like the very brief version of how you see careers unfolding for women in in twenty in the twenty twenties, and maybe one word of advice that comes from your thinking about this important topic, because I know it's one that's near and dear to you. It is. Um, so women's careers have typically been patterned on a male life cycle. So your 20s, you're learning who you are. Your 30s, you're high potential and also ran. Your 40s, you're assuming the wheel, wheels of power. Your 50s, you have one blonde and a Ferrari, and then you give on to the next generation. Right? Well, that doesn't work for women. So an awful lot of women, at least my generation of women, are now finding they're blossoming in their 50s, 60s, and beyond. Um, and that is a force of nature. The organizations that are able to harness that are going to flourish. Mm. Yes, indeed. Uh, I could not agree more. And that's so. So, what's the advice for women then who are perhaps, you know, looking to a longer future in in the workplace than they might have uh, been taught when they were girls growing up? Sure, build your network. Um, absolutely, stock that network with people who can be helpful to you. 
find sponsors in addition to mentors. Uh, and lastly, don't be afraid to, to recognize that your skills, which may not be formally noted, are often informally incredibly valuable. How do you find that out? Uh, things like creating webs of inclusion, um, connecting resources from different places, mm -hmm. uh, using your skills at managing interpersonal conflict, which any person who's had more than one child is brilliant at. Um, <laughs> those kinds of things can be very transmittable to any kind of other of economic can. place. All right. Uh, Rita, so much fun talking with you. Where can people find out more about the work that you're doing, including the new stuff that you're generating to help people lead and be effective contributors in team environments. Oh, that, yeah, that's a new project for me. Uh, that one you can learn about at a website called Valise, V-A-L-I-Z-E dot com. Uh, the rest of my world you can find out about at RitaMcGrath.com. Very clever. Uh, I have a monthly newsletter, which you can subscribe to. Uh, I also have YouTube Which I channels. do, and it's very informative. I highly recommend you sign up for that, folks. Thanks. Please continue, Rita. Um, I'm on YouTube. I have a channel there. Uh, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm even edging my way onto Instagram. We'll see how that goes. Uh, <laughs> but RitaMcGrath.com is probably the central repository for most things. What are you most excited about right now, looking forward to the rest of the second half here of 2020? Um, really, this Women in Leadership course that I'm running for Columbia, I think it's going to be a real win. Um, and then we've got a number of other innovation programs underway to make this whole process easier, because I think one of the big gaps is we don't have tools. So I'm doing a lot of work on tools, which are kind of in stealth mode now, but um, get the newsletter. You'll be sure to find out about them. Awesome. Rita McGrath, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks, Stu. It's been great speaking with you. And thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to tune in next week at 5 p.m. Eastern. If you have a question about what Rita and I were talking about today, we want to hear from you. I want to hear from you. You can just write to me, friedman at wharton.upenn.edu. Or if you don't want to write to me directly, you can write our station, which is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can follow our show on Twitter at SXMBusiness, or you can just follow me at Stu Friedman. You can find edited versions of some of our shows as free podcasts. They're all at totalleadership.org. And there, too, you can find all kinds of free resources, videos, book chapters, articles, more, uh, and information about our company, Total Leadership, and how we help people create harmony, reduce stress, and perform better in all parts of life. Thanks, Patty Hall, our producer for making it happen today, and our sound engineer, Dion Simpkins. I am Stu Friedman. You've been listening to Work and Life on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, Sirius XM 132.